Hello, and welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Michael Price, Executive Director of the Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm delighted to welcome animal trainer William Berloni to our program today. You might say that Bill is the ultimate casting director for the theater's four-legged stars. Perhaps his most famous star was Sandy in the Broadway show Annie. He's also been involved in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Legally Blonde, just to name a few. Bill also serves as an animal behavior consultant to the Humane Society of New York, and every animal Bill has trained has been a rescue from a shelter. In 2011, he was honored with a special Tony Award for his many years of work in the theater. And I might add that Bill got his start in the theater some time ago, long ago, at the Good Speed Opera House. Welcome, and welcome, Bill Berloni. Well, it's great to see you. It's always good to see you, and knowing that you only live a few miles from me is even better. And knowing that any time we need a dog uh, for our home, Mm -hmm. we are able to call Billy. And uh, we've had the best rescues uh, ever uh, coming from you. Uh, Perhaps you might want to tell our listeners uh, how we became engaged with each other. Well, you've already sort of clued it. You, You introduced me as William. You you said to Bill when you were describing my bio, but then you just called me Billy. Now, that's because people who call me Billy knew me when I was 19 years old, and that's when we first met. That was like my mother calling me Mike. Right. right. That's okay, yeah. But, you know, when I graduated high school in Connecticut and I wanted to be in the professional theater, the Goodspeed had an, a technical apprenticeship program, and having no carpentry skills at all. I have no idea how I got into your program, but certainly that changed my life, the course of my life forever. Because in the summer of 1976, you gave me the honor of working 70 hours a week for free, building scenery, you know, but being around, you know, New York professional actors and designers and directors. And all of a sudden, I was in the professional theater. And living in a room with four other people in bunk beds. That's correct. Absolutely. Yep. So that's where it all began for me. And that was the summer that we gave you uh, $35 and said, Bill, go to the Newington Pound and find a dog for us. For That's Ann. right. For That's Ann. right. But th- the story is a little more interesting than that, if you remember. Um, you couldn't find anybody to train the dog because it was too costly. And all the paid staff members threatened to quit if they had to find the dog. So you needed someone who would do it for free on a budget. And as I recall the conversation, you invited me in the office and knowing I wanted to be an actor, asked me if I would, how I would enjoy having my equity card and having a part in one of the shows. And all I had to do was find and train a dog for Annie. I didn't remember that part of it because I was so thrilled I was going to, at the age of 19, get my equity card and and be on the good speed stage that it took me a couple days to realize that what had I agreed to? (laughs) Well, well, I think that I think that uh, you, I think it would be great if you talked a little bit more about how you learned to uh, train uh, the first Sandy. But I, I also remember that at the end of that season, we said, "What are we going to do with this dog, Billy? Won't you like to take it home with you?" And and that was the summer I I was going. I had enrolled in NYU, and I was going to start studying acting with Stella Adler. I had a a uh, fifth floor walk up in Greenwich Village. I was going to go to New York and be a starving actor. And at that point, I thought, I love this dog so much. I might as well have a starving dog, too. So the two of us did move to New York City <laughs> together at the end of the summer. So 
you're later on in that year, you were called by Marty Chernin and the mm-hmm. producers of Annie, um, the Kennedy Center and uh, uh, the Niederlander family and Mike Nichols. Uh, so what was that like when you got that call and said, we want you and we want Sandy? Well, Again, imagine being a, a 19-year-old and, and, and having the opportunity to get my equity card and being on stage. And, and, the, and the musical was a revival of Dearest Enemy. So I remember meeting Richard Rogers. He came up to see the show. And, and, and again, at the age of 19, to have this wonderful career blossom, I, I thought that was it. You know, I, I was on my way. And then, like you said, I had moved to New York. I was enrolled in NYU. And Mike Nichols' office called and asked if I would be interested in working on the Broadway production. And I thought, any way to work with Mike Nichols and, and the team again on Broadway, sure, I'll be a dog trainer. I would have gotten coffee for them, not just, you know, train the dog. So it was unbelievable to me that uh, a, a Broadway show of that magnitude with those people would put entrust me with this job of this very important character, having never trained a dog before or, you know, even worked on, you know, a show in New York. It was unbelievable. And how different was the experience of uh, training a dog for the New York production versus the training of uh, the dog for the Connecticut production? Well, the Connecticut production, it, it was family. You know, when when we got Sandy, he was abused. He was frightened. He lived in the tech house with all of us. He came to the shop with me. And as I started to get him friendly, I wanted him to think the theater was his home and that the people were his family so he'd feel safe. When it moved to Broadway and it became a business, all of a sudden they were, well, what, you know, can you do this training and we have more scenes? You know, maybe we should hire a trainer to work with you. And they did. And I thought this trainer was so forceful with Sandy. I refused to continue the lessons. I said, if if you don't trust my technique and what I want to do with this, then you have to find another dog trainer. And fortunately, Martin Charney did. He said, just let Billy do it his way. And, you know, we had Andrew McCardle. And so I was able to continue that very loving relationship between Sandy and Annie. And it really didn't matter if they let me preserve that. We could have been doing it anywhere. And and that's what succeeded, you know, that relationship of, of them loving each other, you know, is what came onto the Kennedy Center and ultimately onto the stage at the Alvin Theater. And when you uh, when you trained the first Sandy, you also had an understudy for that production in New York? That was the other thing. When we were at good speed, we didn't have an understudy. Nobody had understudies. Right. That was before we uh, we wisened up and got right. understudies. Right? Yeah, and and you know Broadway, they were like, now you need an understudy dog. I was like, uh, what? And uh, so I did go to the ASPCA and adopt a, a little dog from there, who was totally wrong for the show. He he never he never was able to ever do the show. In fact, he wasn't even housebroken when we went to the Kennedy Center. He, <laughs> We had to put plastic down in the green room so that he wouldn't have an accident in the green room. But ultimately, you know, I started learning what I was doing because I had to replicate it for the national touring companies after that. And and when you um – did the understudy ever go on or did did Sandy always go on? Sandy did the entire run of the show from good speed to the day it closed in in New York except for three weeks – when Andrea McCardle had left and she went to Las Vegas to do a, an act in the Liberace show and she requested Sandy to be part of that act. But he did the entire 2,333 performances, I think is what I counted. And the understudy went on for those three Those three weeks, yep. And at what point in your life did you decide that uh, you were not going to be an actor, but you were going to train four-footed actors or four-legged actors? Well, 
you know, even when Annie opened, I moved from that fifth floor walk up in Greenwich Village to Central Park West and 68th Street. Okay. <laughs> and and at that point, you know, I thought, wow, I'm making a decent salary. I can, I could, I was taking dance lessons with Peter Gennaro and I was taking singing lessons because I had an income. Now, um, about after my second national company with Annie, uh, Camelot called. They were doing a revival of Camelot with Richard Burton. And they asked me if I would train the dog. And I thought, again, being in the room with Richard Burton, one of the greatest actors and learning from him. So I agreed to do that show. And then I got asked to do another Broadway show, which was Frankenstein. And, and it was about three years into it that I realized I was much more talented as an animal trainer. And that was my profession, not performing. And when did you start to train animals other than dogs? I think my first... It was probably in 1980. Eva Galleon was directing a production of Alice in Wonderland with Kate Burton, and they needed a pig and a black cat. And again, Eva Galleon, I mean, one of the greatest directors around. And so uh, the, the, my theory of treating animals with respect and kindness and positive reinforcement, I thought, well, if it works for dogs, maybe it'll work for cats and pigs. And it did. So that was the first time I went outside of the canine world. And what's the difference between uh, the technique of dealing with a dog or a cat or uh, a pig? Mm -hmm. Well, dogs are social creatures. I mean, that's why they were easily domesticated. They were the ones who wandered into the the caveman's areas because they wanted to live in packs. Pretty much any other species doesn't have that same mentality of wanting to be part of a group. So you look at each individual species, as you do with every person you work with, and figure out, okay, what makes you tick? What motivates you? What frightens you? And once I discover that of a species, I use those things to, again, create a behavior that I know I could replicate on stage. I remember my first understanding that you were not just a a dog person, a canine person, but a, but cats and other animals. When I think it was the Lieutenant Inishmore, <laughs> when the cat went walked across the top of the set, at, yeah. it was towards the end of the show. Yeah. Uh, was that difficult to teach the cat that? Impossible. Um, I, I say most of my gray hairs come from training cats because cats never listen. So when we get a show with a cat, what we do is I search shelters for cats who think they're dogs. You know, cats with atypical feline behavior who will be social with people, who will be motivated for food. So the search for the right cat is harder. But I think the one that freaked my wife out most was the rats we had in um, The Woman in White. (laughs) Andrew Lloyd Webber's show. Andrew Lloyd Webber's show, yeah. We had a basement full of white rats. And uh, those are the ones that sort of tipped her over and said, uh, can we stick with dogs now? And I remember that white rat ran up and down uh, the man's sleeve yep. and across Michael the Michael Balls, yep, yeah. the villain's sleeve. So uh, when you talk about uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Eva Legallion, Mike Nichols, Richard Burton, Kate Burton, uh, the list just goes on, doesn't it? Thanks to the good speed and to Annie, I created something that had never really been a part of the theater, which was having an animal be a character in a live theatrical performance – in which the story depends upon. In shows prior to Annie, like Camelot or Anything Goes or Gypsy, you can cut the animals and still do the musical. But in Annie, we couldn't because that was so integral a part. But all being so young and naive, nobody told us that you can't depend on an animal to do the same thing every 
time, eight times a week. So, you know, I when, I, when Annie opened, I became a trainer who was doing something different, which was creating animal characters. And then the word sort of got out. So this wondrous career that I've had with, with the geniuses of the theater, you know, world and, and the entertainment world is just unbelievable. So uh, I'm so blessed, you know, and, and part of that, paying it forward is, you know, after the first Sandy, I remember the day I went looking for Sandy, I, I had never been to an animal shelter, and I was profoundly moved by what I saw. You know, here was a kid from Connecticut who had got dogs from the pet shop, and here were animals that I had loved in horrible conditions, and I just made a promise to myself that day I went looking that if I ever got a dog, another animal, I would rescue it. Little did I know that that personal promise would span a career. So, you know, my give back to what Sandy and everybody gave to me was continuing to help animals with the career that I have. And so every animal that you train for the theater or television or film is an animal that is rescued from a shelter? Yep. So so that little pig in Alice in Wonderland didn't become bacon. Um, and there's a rat rescue of Westchester, if you would like the number to rescue rats. And there are always animals in peril. And, um, you know, again, if I can bring light to that, as well as entertain and educate, um, what better for a theatrical artisan to do? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. What comes first? The description of the animal in the play and the type of animal or the character of the animal or what can you find in the, in the shelter? Do you, do you bring the character to the production or do you search for the character in the animal that you're going to rescue? It, it's, it should be I find the animal and we work it into the production. But usually, you know, I will get a script, a developed script written by some writer whose images of what animals can do probably come from television or movies. Um, and then it's my job to explain to the creators how we can you can't get the dog to do this eight times a week but this is what an animal can do does this satisfy your intent so i become a collaborator at the very you know beginning of the of the producing process with the director and the writer and saying that's impossible but this is what i think we can get and unfortunately i don't you know if you're doing the wizard of oz you have to use a little black Karen terrier and Karen Terriers are ratters, they're very high-strung, and they're very aggressive. And I have to find a Toto, a Karen Terrier, who will sit on stage when she's singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow and be calm and loving with children. So again, the search becomes that much more difficult, finding an atypical Karen Terrier to be on stage. We've done it, but I would one time like to be part of the writing process so that I don't have to play catch-up to the script in, in Legally Blonde, you had uh, two dogs, as yes. I recall. Uh, the little one, the Chica. The Chihuahua. The Chihuahua, which I remember from the movie as yep. well. But uh, there was a bulldog, was Yes, it? yep. And both yep. of those were part of this, the original movie. In oh, book. it was. Okay. Yep. I think, well, you, you just said you'd like to be part of the writing and part of the creation of the character, and then you can go out and cast the animal. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the project that you're currently involved in, in writing? Sure. Um, again, my wife and I have been waiting for our next Annie so that we could retire. And we were sure that somebody would, would recognize that if you put an animal in a show, it's going to sell tickets. But well, wasn't a, it Burns Mantle that said, uh, if you put uh, animals and uh, children on the stage, you win it every time? Yep. Okay. So it wasn't happening, and my wife, who uh, 
worked at the Bushnell at one time in Hartford as their programming director, got interested in producing, and she acquired the rights, the theatrical rights, to a children's book, which is called Because of Winn-Dixie. And it's about a young girl and her preacher father. Mother has run away, and they encounter a giant dog. And this giant dog changes not only their life, but the life of everybody they interact with. So she got the theatrical rights, and as the impresario of production, you know that having the dream of a Broadway musical is like a lottery ticket. But she's been working at it, and we've signed Junk and Cheek to write the music. We've got Nell Benjamin, who wrote Legally Blonde to do the music and lyrics. We have John Tartaglia, who's one of the best puppeteer animal guys in the in, in the world to be our director, and we're in development of this. And it, it's great because I've come to this saying, all right, what kind of giant dog can we use? And I've been working and adopting dogs, and we have now have two Irish wolfhounds. And part of our developmental process is we will have a script reading, and then I bring the creators to a rehearsal room, and I show them what the dog can do. They see what the dog is like, what its personality is like, and then they write it into the script. So I'm actually billed as the animal director. So for the first time now, I'm one of the creators as opposed to a facilitator. So that is exciting. You know, it is it is sort of new because what we're going to see in the theater is the first show that stars an animal. So in Legally Blonde, the story was the Elle Woods always with with her chihuahua. As with a lot of shows, when you put an animal on stage, it steals the focus. So as Legally Blonde progressed, we kept cutting the chihuahua because it was upstaging the scene. <laughs> and in this, we're, we're going to put the, the, the dog front and center all the time. You know, the thought that you, you know, you wouldn't have thought that you could do a, a show about horses that are being moved by puppeteers because you would be distracted by the puppeteers. But War Horse recently has shown us that if you have a good story, you suspend disbelief and you don't see the puppeteers. Absolutely. So we're hoping that Winn-Dixie being there will draw the audience into this wonderful story we've discovered about the human-animal bond. And when you uh, train an animal, are you also training the actors as well to work with the animals? Well... Yes, and and again, I didn't start out that way. Um, I, when when we were at Goodspeed, I knew that Sandy would go to people he loved. So our rehearsals were, I would take the kids out back and play with them, and Sandy fell in love with our girls. So when I was releasing him to go on stage, he wasn't going there because I was telling him to. He was going there because he was going to someone he loved. And I also recognized being an actor that the dog couldn't be looking in the wings for the cue all the time. That would distract the audience. So the cues had to come from the people on stage. So that's where the theory of taking actors and turning them into trainers. Fortunately, my first pupil was a child um, and pl- and went with me on that, worked. And most of the time, it works beautifully. Sometimes I run into adult actors who don't necessarily want to get on the floor and play with the dogs. When you said an animal does not do the same show eight times a week, I mean, we know that actors also don't do the same show eight times a week. There are some variations depending on the audience response. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they say it's the humidity in the air, but the timing, the beats are not always the same. But what are your expectations of the animal eight times a week? Interestingly enough, dogs don't have cognitive thought process. They don't, they can't, if an actor makes a mistake, they can't go, oh, they blew it, I'll cover for them. So I'm, it has to be very consistent. The actors have to be with them, they have to be engaged with them, and they have to do the same thing every night. Otherwise, the performance falls apart, the dog looks off stage and walks off. Simple. 
Um, and I have found that the animals are much more consistent than the actors. They show up every night wanting to do their behaviors to get the treat. But like you said, some actors come in, they've had a fight with their spouse. They partied too much last night. And that affects the performance. And I'm constantly reminding actors, listen, you're responsible for that performance of that animal, and you have to be engaged. Otherwise, it's going to go up, and it's not fair to the audience who's paid the money to come to see the show. Okay. Um, You've done a lot of theater everywhere, Uh, regional theater, You've done television, Broadway, I assume Mm -hmm. off-Broadway. What's your favorite venue uh, for working with animals in show business? Interestingly enough, I want to say high schools and summer stock. Interesting. Because it goes back, you know, there are many high schools that have the money to hire me. Or if there's a summer stock theater who, company who's doing something because then I'm surrounded by people who are there for the love of theater. You know, just like we when we all started 35 years ago, we were all at the Opera House because we loved what we were doing. And when I have that atmosphere of positivity around me, it's much easier to get everybody engaged in making the animal a part of the show. The more commercial it gets, the higher the stakes. All of a sudden, the animal gets put to the bottom of the list in terms of rehearsal, time needed, you know, and and it just becomes more of a fight as an advocate for the animal to provide the performance as opposed to going to an area where we're all interested in doing a show. And it sounds idealistic, but I love working with high school kids, you know, because it brings me back to why I got in this business. Let me ask one question that's just tangential to that. Is there any standout production of all of the shows you've done for the last 35, 36 years? Wow. When I'm in a show and I'm working, I'm so focused on the animal, I'm always tripping and falling. I, I'm not really aware of the what's going on around. And there are moments in my memory, you know, like Sandy was my favorite. I mean, the, Sandy and Andrea and, and, and the original production of Annie it stands in my heart and in my brain as the thing that sort of changed the course of my life. Um, and the good speed Annie, not necessarily the the Annie with that when it opened and we became famous and we were going everywhere, it's like a whirlwind stuff. And I don't remember it as much fun and, you know, as when we were playing behind the opera house by the Connecticut River and, you know, and eating meals together and doing shows. Um, Legally Blonde. I mean, Legally Blonde was a fun experience because it was a fun show, you know, and even the director, Jerry Mitchell, said, listen, kids, it's not Les Mis. It's Legally Blonde. We're going to go out there. We're going to have fun. And so the whole production in terms of its production was fun. You know, listening to Richard Burton do the Excalibur speech at the end of Camelot in the first act. It was the last time he performed on stage before he passed away. I mean, there are moments like that through my career, but I, I certainly Annie is always there first and foremost. Billy, you know, one of the things that, uh, for first of all, I, I don't, one should have been interviewing uh, Dorothy, your wife, as mm-hmm. well, because I think uh, for those of us who have watched your career, um, give her a lot of credit for for being right by beside you and behind you and sometimes in front of mm-hmm. you uh, as a as a great partner in yeah. in this whole uh in this whole career of yours but one of the things that impresses all of us the most is that you give back so much uh it's not a job it's not just a career it's not just the money and the dogs and mm-hmm. the fame but you're giving back to the humane society 
to uh, to society as well. And mm-hmm. I think that's very impressive. And have you ever thought about how much you give back? No, you know, and it's and it's interesting. I could say the same about you. You know, you started out at the opera. Don't talk house. about me. Well, you talk about yourself. Well, but no. But what's interesting was that that was my experience. I mean, we we worked at the opera house to to create great theater and to give you know give a, the audience and artisans a great experience. So coming into the business, I thought that was the standard. I thought we all chipped in, we all helped each other out, we all did things for the community, we all did things for each other. So that was sort of the that to me was what I thought theater was, and so I've just sort of continued that. We had a volunteer guild who would take care of the actors and everybody. I mean, so, uh, you know, and even role models like you and, and Charles and Tom and Martin. I mean, I was a young man who thought, oh, I'm going to the theater. I'll never have a normal life. I'll never have a wife. I'll never have kids. And my first experience was with gentlemen who had that. And, and, and it inspired me to go, yeah, I could, I could be an actor and I could have a real life and a family. So, that's why I was sort of taken back when I got into commercial theater. It, it was a big shock for me. And in fact, one of my favorite stories is, you know, we did Annie at Goodspeed and then we went to the Kennedy Center. And it was, you know, chaos and a lot of pressure. And and being young and naive, you know, I, of course, went to the head honcho, which was you, you know, at the Goodspeed. But I went to Mike Nichols. And I was like, oh, Mr. Nichols, you know, Sandy's really scared. He has not, not time on stage. I can't get rehearsal. The stage manager's all. And he looked at me and he said, kid, they don't call it show business for nothing. And that was the first moment that I went, oh, my gosh, maybe theater isn't what I thought it was at the opera house. So I – I don't know. I, I, I feel blessed every day, and I think if I've got something I could share to help somebody else, I will. Well, it's very impressive. I mean, what you do and what you stand for is something that all of us stand in great admiration. And, uh, you know, when you said well, get married and have children, and uh, so you and Dorothy and Jenna to us at Goodspeed are the first family of uh, theatrical uh, animals, so to speak. Uh, But uh, the other thing that really is important for folks to know is that you've written a wonderful book called Broadway Tales. And I would urge anyone who is listening to this podcast or broadcast to – I think they have to go to Amazon probably. It's the easiest way to get it. Uh, or to the Drama Bookshop here in New York. Or barnesandnoble.com. barnesandnoble.com. And uh, I'd pick up a copy of uh, Broadway Tales uh, and – it's just a wonderful sojourn uh, through the animal world in New York in shows. Uh, if you were to say something to the next generation of people entering the theater and entering the theater perhaps as an animal trainer, what would be your advice to them? Don't. I don't want any competition. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and I do. I get, <laughs> I get emails daily saying, Mr. Berloni, please, can I be an apprentice so you can teach me what you do? And I'm thinking, I'm the only guy who does it. Why would I share this and create any more competition? But a lot of the things I do is talk at colleges. My life is one of having found the right path in terms of my artistic career. And it just goes to show that you don't have to be an actor or a director or a star to have not only a career in this business, but to excel and even be acknowledged by 
you know, the Tony Award Committee. I created something new and different. There had never been a theatrical animal trainer. And so as opposed to young people coming in trying to emulate someone else, they should try and find their own path in terms of creativity and go with it and um, be happy that you have the opportunity every day to work in the theater. I think that's a very rare experience to be in the theater and to have uh, a niche as ever so special as, as you have created. But I think that our listeners should know that you not only have created a niche for yourself, but you have created an aura about how to treat animals, how to be kind to animals, how to rescue animals, and to treat the animal as if they were a fellow actor, a fellow theater practitioner. And the admiration that we have for you is in your chosen field, in your singularly chosen field, since there is no competition, is just wonderful. Let me interject. Last week, the BBC called me, and they wanted an interview because Steven Spielberg had said that he felt that animals should get an Academy Award. And I proudly said, well, listen, I wholeheartedly agree with that, except Broadway has already acknowledged me with a Tony Award. So Broadway has already acknowledged that animals are not only performers, but they are sentient beings. And so I encourage the Academy to follow suit. With that, we're going to close our conversation. And I think that the respect for life and for the human life and the animal life that you exude is a great shining example to all of us. Thank you, Bill Berloni. And on behalf of the American Theater Wing, this is Michael Price saying... Just tune us in and find us on our webpage. Hello, I'm Heather Hitchens, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. I hope you enjoyed today's edition of Downstage Center. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Our engineer for today's show is Chad Bernhard. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free at americantheaterwing.org. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website, americantheaterwing.org, and click Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, thanks for your support and thanks for listening.